Yeah, thanks very much, Whitney. Yeah, I, I'm very much following on from what you were just talking about in terms of, uh, certainly in terms of natural asset companies. Um, and you, you mentioned in your presentation about the idea that they're going to they're gonna create markets worth up to four quadrillion. Well, currently, if we look at global productive GDP, when they talk about that 512 trillion figure, they're talking about including things like the derivatives market and stuff like that. But if we look at look at GDP itself um, in terms of productive economy, the productive economy of the planet isn't isn't anything like that. It's something like 94 trillion. So they're talking about something which is 40 times the size of the current productive um, global economy. And, you know, people would argue that that that, you know, you need to include financial activity in that as well. But if you don't, you know, then then um, then, you know, they, they obviously talk. But even if you do, they're still talking about a massive increase in global markets. So the, the question is, how are they how are they going to do this? What you know, how is this going to be achieved? Where is this? Where are these new markets going to come from? And that is essentially what the what we've been they have been discussing at, at COP26. The, the, the media and have portrayed it to, to everybody that's been interested in it, that it's all about saving the planet. Um, but it isn't about saving the planet. It's about creating new markets. And that's, that's, and I would add, not just creating markets, it's about seizing control of those markets as well. So when we talk about this kind of network, because we've mentioned so many people, there's the banks, the financial institutions, there's the politicians, governments, all these people, they all seem to be singing from the same hymn sheet. And that's because um, they are in a network that, that we, for want of a better, a better way of expressing it, perhaps we could call the global public private partnership. And policy that, that filters down to us is created within this network. And if we look at kind of the flow of policy around the world, then we can see where that policy originates and how it ends up being on, on our doorsteps. Um, and certainly when you look at the, the history and the, uh, the way that the, the idea of sustainable development happened, then that starts with the, the, the globalist think tanks like the... Um, uh, people like, um, you know, the, the World Economic Forum and the Club of Rome and people like that, they come up with, and they're, they're working very much in consultation with financial institutions are talking about creating the idea of a policy agenda, which we're, now we're talking about the 1970s and, and further back than that. That agenda then gets converted into policy, which can then be disseminated around the world through organizations like the IMF mm. and then and then we come down to national mm. governments and then at that point the policy agenda the governance idea um, ends up becoming what we might call hard policy and legislation because it's the role of government who are part of this network when governments talk about their industry partners and their stakeholder partners they mean that literally it's a it's a partnership government's role is to as as Corey uh, as Whitney mentioned earlier was to create what they call the enabling environment which enables these policies to be put into place and that is what we we then experience that as policy that that affects us at the local level so that that's government's role is to create the enabling environment to allow the policies to be converted into legislation often 
So it was, what are the global commons? Well, the global commons are a principle in international law and it's composed of two ideas. There's, there was a guy called Garrett Hardin and he came up with the idea of the tragedy of the commons. Uh, and then there's the common heritage of mankind, which was, which was an idea that goes back to the 50s, but it's more probably more famously, it was advocated by Arvid Pardo in 1967. And he was very much talking about the management of the oceans. So the global commons, um, are, it, it's, it's a malleable concept, but broadly speaking, um, the United Nations Environmental Programme, UNEP, when in one of their, their monthly, or I think it might be um, quarterly magazine, uh, Our Planet, and you do have to wonder what they mean by ours. Um, they they initially came up with this, this, it was quoted in there, it wasn't actually the UN, it was somebody else in the magazine, but the UN obviously published it. Um, the shared resources that no one owns, but all life relies upon, which was at the time was 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 a, a reasonable encapsulation of what the global commons was supposed to be. But then in the UN systems task team, which is a UNEP team where it, <clears throat> excuse me, expanded on this and published a document in 2013, Global Governance and Governance of the Global Commons in the Global Partnership for Development and Beyond 2015. And they more formally defined it. So they said international law identifies four global commons, namely the high seas, the atmosphere, Antarctica and the outer space. Resources of interest of value to the welfare of the community of nations, such as tropical rainforests and biodiversity, have lately been included among the traditional set of global commons. While some define the global commons even more broadly, including science, education, information and peace, stewardship of the global commons cannot be carried out without global governance. And that is a key aspect, I would say, of, of why the GPP, the Global Public-Private Partnership, are very interested in the global commons. So this was expanded further by uh, then uh, still Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez of the United Nations expanded on this. And he said uh, at, at the State of the Planet conference, and he said, quote, we have a chance. And I would add this was in December 19, in 2020. So this is very kind of recent. And he said, we have a chance to not simply reset the world economy, but to transform it. We must turn this momentum into a movement. Everything is interlinked, the global commons and the global well-being. This means more and bigger effectively managed conservation areas, biodiversity, positive agriculture and fisheries. More and more people are understanding the need for their own daily choices to reduce their carbon footprints and respect planetary boundaries. Who defines those boundaries? from protests in the street to advocacy online, from classroom education to community engagement, from voting booths to places of work. We cannot go back to the old normal. We have a blueprint, the 2030 agenda, the sustainable development goals and the Paris Agreement on climate change. Now is the time to transform humankind's relationship with the natural world and with each other. So, this is very kind of big <laughs> subject that they that they are that they are pursuing here and this is what they are pursuing so so just to give you an idea about the way the commons works they're always trying to squeeze more into the commons and we'll talk about why in a moment but they are 
So the World Economic Forum have been trying for quite some time to get cyberspace into the Commons. Um, and then their 2015 Davos Executive Summary, they spoke about that. Uh, and quote, what is clear is that we are confronted by profound political, economic, social, and above all, technological transformations, resulting in entirely new global context for future decision-making. Based on the principles that a multi-stakeholder systemic and future-oriented approach is essential in this new context, the issue to be addressed through sessions, task forces, and private meetings at the annual meeting include, and this was key for them, the inability to significantly improve the management and governance of critical global commons, most notably natural resources and cyberspace. Now, then, when they talk about natural resources, they mean all natural resources. The global commons are not fixed. There's other aspects uh, of our existence are being added all the time. And in June 2021, the World Economic Forum wrote the case for the digital commons. Quote, COVID-19 highlights, highlighted and accelerated the centrality of digital technology in our lives. Yet the, the digital ecosystem is one of the most unequal and dysfunctional aspects of our collective lives. How can we build a digital ecosystem that ensures broadly shared participation and prosperity? We argue that shifting our view to see technology infrastructure as a digital commons could point the way forward for an inclusive and sustainable ecosystem with shared social benefits. Now, obviously, ecosystem and digital technology are two things that you would normally put together, but that's not the point. They want, they want to get these resources, which all life relies upon, into the global commons pot. Now, why are they, why do they want to do it? Because it, if they do it, not only does stewardship of the global commons, which the GPP claims to have the authority to exercise, require global governance, it enables the GPP and their appointed quangos to license access to common resources. So they're creating new markets. So, so this is things like the air we breathe, the sky, the oceans, the forests, every, everything is, they are trying to get into the global commons. So based upon the precept of the global heritage, the common heritage of mankind, for this is a good example, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea was established in 1982. Well, Article 1372 of that law, the, U, the UN declared, quote, all rights in the resources of the area are vested in mankind as a whole, on whose behalf the authority shall act. So that is a self-contradictory statement. They are, they are, on the one hand, they're saying that these are the common resources shared by all of humanity. But on the other hand, but there's an authority that we've put in charge of it. Now, in this case, the area, they, they use words like this. They just say, oh, it's the area. The area was the all oceans on Earth. The entire, the entire, all the oceans on Earth, including everything in them, and everything beneath them. So this, this authority was defined in section four of, of, of the, the LOSC as the International Seabed Authority. So suddenly these commons, which, which you know, we all have equal responsibility for stewardship, and that's the point, we all have equal responsibility for stewardship of our natural environment, suddenly we don't. 
Now, in terms of the oceans, some quango called the International Seabed Authority is in charge. So, but the International Seabed Authority itself is a global public-private partnership. It is currently, it's granted more, but it initially granted five cobalt exploration contracts. And those cobalt exploration compact, uh, contracts went to uh, a Japanese, the Chinese, Russians, Republic of Korea, and Brazilian um, uh, nationalized companies. So, but these are their stakeholders, but they're not the only stakeholders in the International Seabed Authority. We've also got other corporations, for example, Lockheed Martin, the weapons manufacturer, they have a wholly owned subsidiary called UK Seabed Resources, who are also stakeholder partner of the International Seabed Authority. Now, this, this is where the, the advantage to being a stakeholder in these regulating authorities becomes so useful because you then have influence over the regulation of your own market. So the International Seabed Authority regulations that they put forward in 2020, they added that they would like a finance, the, the, the corporations and all the companies that were their stakeholders to, to, to put in funds to set aside funds to cover unexpected costs, expenses, and liabilities. But Lockheed Martin didn't like that. So Lockheed Martin, they lobbied and, and used their, their role as a stakeholder to, to insert an additional clause, which was, quote, the guarantee is not to cover costs, expenses, and liabilities incurred as a result of tortious liability for environmental damage because because they know that in scraping the seabed for for rare earth metals like cobalt they are going to destroy the environment they know that so they don't want to be held liability liable for it so that is why they want to be stakeholders in these licensing authorities that they have created for something which was hitherto everybody's but it was it was it was the heritage of man all mankind so this is the bottom line licensing access to the global commons guarantees global governance it creates new markets controlled by the gppp whose stakeholders are themselves stakeholders in the gpps which form the regulators the gppp and its network of stakeholder capitalists by exploiting sustainable development goals, and we'll get to that in a moment, intend to control the global commons, which they are defining. This is a gambit to control everything, all resources and all of us. Now they are creating an asset rating system again, based on SDGs to ensure that they control all investment or business and the global economy. So then we get to how are they how are they going to control these asset classes that Whitney was talking about earlier? How is that going to work for, 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 for on a global level for companies and businesses around the world? And another thing it's probably worth saying, this is all businesses. So small to medium sized enterprises are going to struggle with the with the onerous requirements placed upon them again. How are they going to how are they going to fare? The chances are they're not. But the point of stakeholder capitalism metrics is to rate those assets. So so the game, this is centrally controlled. So if they can rate the assets, 
that are that are based on sustainable development goals and sustainable development ideas in general then they can control who wins and who loses they can control who gets investment capital investment and who doesn't get capital investment so the stakeholder capitalist metric system right assets will be will be rated using environmental social and governance esg benchmarks for sustainable business performance any business requiring market finance perhaps through issuing climate bonds or maybe green bonds for european ventures will need those bonds to have a healthy esg rating a low esg rating will deter investors and the project or business venture won't get off the ground a high ESG rating will see investors rush to put their money in the projects which are backed by international agreements as sustainable development goals are. In combination, these financialist initiatives like NACs and ESGs are converting SDGs into market regulations. This places centralised authority over the global economy in the hands of the global public-private partnership. Speaking in July 2019, then Governor of the Bank of England, him again, Mark Carney, and the future UN Special Envoy to climate for, of for Climate Action, simply stated, quote, companies that ignore climate change and don't adapt will go bankrupt without question. This was, you know, this was a thinly veiled threat, I personally think. Later, speaking at the Green Horizon Summit in November 2020, jointly hosted by the City of London Corporations, the Green Finance Institution and the World Economic Forum, Carney, acting in another role this time as Prime Ministerial uh, Finance Advisor on COP26, said, quote, Transition plans will reveal the leaders and laggers on the road to Glasgow. We will not get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. And when he was talking about whole economy, he meant the global economy, the whole of the world's economy. So at COP2026, following Carney's GFAN's announcement, the next person on stage who got far less more coverage was the um, trustee chair of the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation, Erki Likkanen. Now, he announced something called the International Sustainability Standards Board. So I'm going to read this. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but it's worth listening to because it's, it's, an, it's very important, this. So he said, quote, to play their role effectively in this transition, financial markets need good quality, comparable information about the effects of sustainability related risks and opportunities for making investment decisions. Now, more than 140 countries require companies to report using the IFRS accounting standards. Investors get high quality, assured and globally comparable financial information on which to make investment and capital allocation decisions. Companies have to standardise their reporting to the market. Capital markets can have an essential role to play in reaching net zero. We are announcing the formation of the International Sustainability Standards Board, or ISSB. Its purpose is to develop in public interests a comprehensive global baseline of sustainability disclosures for financial markets. IFRS Sustainability Disclosure Standards. The ISSB will sit within the IFRS Foundation 
alongside the IASB, and I'll explain why that's important in a moment, and we'll work closely with it. This is the outcome of the work by the Task Force for Climate Related Disclosures, the VRF, the CBD, CBSD, the World Economic Forum, and the IASB. These actions together create the necessary institutional arrangements for a global sustainability disclosure standard setting for financial markets. The ISSB will focus on meeting the sustainability information needs of investors for assessing enterprise value and making investment decisions. Its standards will help investors understand how companies are responding to ESG issues like climate to inform capital allocation decisions. So what this means is they are creating a system which with a centralized control over a system which will allocate basically finance globally. Companies will need to step through these hoops in order to access financing. So this is the, the, the way that this global operating system is going to work. So the International Sustainability Standards Board, the IFSB, so it's working closely with the International Accountancy Standards Board. But the IASB is a private organisation. The ISB is not, not, not a public organisation. The IFRS is, is kind of pseudo-public. But the IASB is not. It's definitely a private organisation. So the financial stability boards, which is, they, they claim they're independent, but actually they're part of the Bank of International Settlements. The Financial Stability Board created these task force on climate related financial disclosures in 2015. The UK government, and this is where the whole thing comes together, the whole thing starts to come together. The UK government have made those disclosures mandatory and other nations have followed suit. In the UK, they've set a firm commitment by, uh, to make them mandatory by 2025 for all business and they must and so every every company must submit their sustainability report now that report will be the the, the elements of that report will be overseen and designed by the ISSB who will be working next to this private organization the IASB so currently in keeping with these this disclosure requirements and standards ESG ratings will be assessed by all these private companies, notably given what Whitney was just talking about, Bloomberg, ESG, data services, and so forth. They are controlling this. They're in charge of, of how this money is being, or how the global, basically how the global economy is going to run. So then all of this gets bundled up together in these things called exchange traded funds that track the performance of these ESG rated assets. And that enables investors, people like BlackRock and, and Vanguard and, and private investors and philanthropic organization trusts to invest in these SDG based investment vehicles. And this plan this is the plan, what we have just seen at COP26, is the plan that was spoken about in Agenda 21 at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. It is the same thing. And all, it's, it's specifically the same thing. Mm -hmm. So this plan has been in place for decades. Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, are set in Agenda 2030's waypoints along the path to completion of the plan for the 21st century as a whole, Agenda 21. 
in Agenda 21, the declared basis for action at Section 8.41 states, quote, a first step towards the integration of sustainability into economic management is the establishment of a better measurement of the crucial role of the environment as a source of natural capital. A common framework needs to be developed whereby the contributions made by all sectors and activities of society that are not included in the conventional national accounts are included. A programme to develop national systems of integrated environmental and economic accounting in all countries is proposed. This is the plan we've seen rolled out at COP26. It was published in 1992. The idea is to create natural capital and shift sustainability into economic management. All sectors and all society will be involved in this effort to transform nature into financial capital. This will include the oversight of the activities of society, such as our use of cyberspace, which are not included in the conventional national accounts, i.e. the global commons. So that, uh, that's, that's where we're heading. 